you put down, let's say, 150K, you, you put down 150K of cash and you get a million dollar deduction. Oh my God. So let's say in California, a million dollar deduction is saving you $400,000 of taxes. All right, we're live. What's going on? Can I tell you about a cool rich people tax credit scheme I discovered? <laughs> yeah. So uh, actually, a mutual friend of ours is the one who put me on to this, but um, I won't say his name because, you know, never talk about another man's taxes. Uh, so so, so <laughs> when uh, when we sold the Milk Road, I was like, oh, man, how do you um, you know reduce taxes in a situation like this? Is there anything I could do? And I think we sold in October. So it was like, you know. You get this windfall of profits in, in October. Is there anything between October and December I can do to, to lower taxes? And I looked into what are different options. Like, what are the legal, clear, by the book options that I could do? And uh, when most people try to ha- uh, generate large, you know, um, deductions or write-offs, they typically think of what a car, car, Buying even bigger, because right? let's say you need millions of dollars of, of, of depreciation. Real estate, you'll go for real estate. So. So real estate's typically the one, but um, your boy's lazy and your boy doesn't like to go and own things and have to like you know manage properties or anything like that. Um, you can always put your money with somebody else and try to try to do it that way. Um, but you this still, is pretty interesting. You, but you still got to research all of them, and and yeah, it's still yeah. a little bit of a pain. Exactly, and you have to buy size. So like, how do you get? You know, let's say you buy a, tip, uh, a property. You know, you're only going to be able to write off like a, a portion of it, right? So you'll get the the sort of the depreciation, then you can get the bonus or accelerated depreciation if you maybe do cost sag or something. You'll get twenty or thirty percent of the value of the property to write off. But let's say you needed, I don't know, what, pick a number, right? Let's say you needed a ten million dollars. Uh, let's say you're, you had ten million of t- uh, taxable income. You would need to buy like a thirty million dollar property or so, just to be even close to deducting like enough to make it significant. And that's a big deal, especially for somebody who's not in real estate. So I was like, okay, that don't want to do that. And uh, our friend put me onto this thing. He's like, you know, there's this other form of depreciation in the form of financing movies. Have you heard about this? No, but tell me about this. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> okay. So here's, um, by the way, I, this sounds like a horrible idea. No, it's a, it's a great idea. I think, uh, <laughs> I think it's a great idea. So basically, there's this thing called film production tax credits. And what ends up happening is the following. Movie needs to get made. Let's just use some numbers. Uh, and by the way, I'm not an expert at this, uh, but I, I get the broad strokes. So uh, uh, forgive me if I get some of the ratios and percentages wrong. And, and, instead of bro science, this is bro tax. Yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, <laughs> numbers no, numbers and words aren't my thing. <laughs> I'm a body language guy. <laughs> so... So let's just pretend you have a, a filmmaker wants to make a movie for a million dollars. So in order to make a film for a million dollars, they need to raise that money from somewhere. And what happened was there was always these uh, there was always these uh, kind of like depreciation incentives. But when Obama came came into to power, he added to them. So what Obama did was he changed the rules, I believe, during his time, to say you can write off a hundred percent of a film's cost before they even make the film, before the money's spent on that film, just on the budget. So let's say it's it's a million-dollar movie. If you buy that movie, you can write off a million dollars right then and there. Nobody – like you don't have to wait for the whole thing to be shot. Before, you had to wait for certain days of production in order order to write off those costs. Now you can just write off from day one as an incentive 
to get people to fund more movies and fund more art and culture and, and this sort of thing. Because re- movies aren't really the best money makers. So you needed a, a little bit of an additional incentive if we want wealthy people to uh, to do this. So now what happens? You put down, let's say, 150K. You, you put down 150K of cash and you get a million dollar deduction. Oh my gosh. So let's say in California, a million dollar deduction is saving you $400,000 of taxes. So already you see the spread, right? I put 150K in, I save 400K in my taxes. Um, now it gets better. So where does the rest of the money come from? So you need the other other 850K in order to finance the movie. You could go to uh, you know, a bank, get a, get a loan for that. So you, you can go get loans on it. You can also get um, basically rebates in the form of taxes. So I don't know if you know this, but like most movies are not made in Hollywood. Do you know where they're made? I think as of recently, Georgia, is that right? Yeah, G- Georgia, Alabama, basically a bunch of states come and they say, hey, if you got a million dollar movie, We'll give you thirty percent of the films. Uh, we'll give you thirty up to thirty percent in tax credits, and so you get a. You basically you don't need a million dollars to to fund the movie. You're going to get get three hundred thousand dollars from the state in order to do it. Why does the state want it? Right, because state wants jobs. State wants if something's filmed there and it looks cool. That's you know tourism. Maybe if you let's say you filmed in New York and New York looks really glamorous, now you get you know additional tourism appeal. You get jobs and you get culture or art in your community, and you get business coming there where otherwise. Who's going to Georgia to, to do something cool, right? Like who's going to Alabama? You know, no, no, no shots fired at Georgia or Alabama, but 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 kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but it's human. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. You know, finding a service solution that keeps your customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at that networking event. And HubSpot Service Hub can help. So with the service solution part, at least it makes it easy. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and a chatbot to handle your frontline tickets so you could scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. Um, so, so basically that's, so that now you get funding on that side, which by the way, you could just go sell those credits. You could just sell those credits for 90 cents on the dollar if you wanted, or you could use them to fund the, fund the movie. And so this collection of things is part of a, 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 a system that wealthy people use in order to get write off. So what happens is there are companies that throughout the year are buying up rights to movies or scoping out rights to movies. Like, and they're looking at it, not in terms of like, How's the plot? How's the script? They're like, what's the budget? I need a one million budget. I need a five. I need a fifteen uh, because I'm gonna. Ha- I need options available for my clients <laughs> at the end of the year. So they basically hold options on these things till the very end of the year, and then they go to their clients and like, how much of a write off do you need? Oh, you need three million dollars. Cool. Here's a ten million dollar project. We're gonna buy, right? We're gonna put in this much cash. We're gonna get that much of a write off. We're gonna finance the rest, and we could do this as a group of investors, not just one person. Wait, you're forgetting the, the 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 second part and the more important part, which is the movie needs to be made and make a profit. Not necessarily. The movie needs to be made. Not necessarily needs to make a profit. So what happens? The movie starts to get made. Once it gets the funding, it's gonna start getting made, and then they'll do things to help. But what you have to do is pay off the loan. So where am I gonna? Let's say in this example of a million dollars, where am I gonna pay off this eight hundred fifty k from? Well, they'll get the tax credits for part of it. They'll go sell the international rights before the movie's made, or they'll go sell an option to Netflix, and then they'll get some revenue in that way while the movie's being made. And they're using that to pay down this loan so that you get, you know, five years later when the movie's finally made, hopefully the movie's paid off. If it's not fully paid off, it's getting close. And then you basically have the revenue from the movie once it happens. And so it doesn't even need to be this awesome, you know, 20% annual return because you got your tax benefits five years ago. 
And so you just need to make sure it's going to pay off the loan amount. Dude, this sounds and, like such a racket. <laughs> Where is there like a? What, it's Hollywood, baby. It's Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> just because you say it that way doesn't mean that it's less of a racket. You know what I mean? Just because I say it's the world's best cup of coffee doesn't mean it is. It ain't. Where? Uh, <laughs> where? Like, what? Do you go to a website? Do you, do you, do you got a guy? You got a movie guy? I got a guy now. Yeah. I haven't done it, by the way. So I should say I didn't do this last year because I learned about it like four days before the end of the year, and then I was like, "What the hell is this?" I was like, <laughs> "We need really to make a movie, this. baby." I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I won't say his name, but let's just pronounce his name, Charlie. I, I, I just got off the phone with Charlie. He's got a $10 million movie for me. All right. Hey, why are the funds? <laughs> you know, like, it was a little too, too rushed. Um, but the more I looked into it, it's a, it is a legitimate thing. It's completely by the book. You can go read, you know, section 26 of the tax code and you can do the bonus depreciation of hundred percent of the film's cost. In, in that time. I think the the key part is there's a little, there's some nuance, like just like with real estate, you got to be an active investor. So you have to be an active film investor in order to offset against your active income. So you have to like go to film festivals and do, do like 36 hours of film study online in order to be qualified as active, whatever the rules are. I'm, I'm making up those exact numbers, but you know, there obviously is a lot of nuance to these things, but just broad strokes, Pretty interesting that rich people can Hold on. Uh, get huge tax write-offs financing movies. So I'm, I'm just looking at this. So you said Obama did this or he like accelerated it? He, he increased it so that you can depreciate 100%. Um, so coincidentally, yeah. the Obamas now have a wonderful production company. Uh, <laughs> they do. And a beautiful home in Georgia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. No, they do. It's, it's called Higher Ground Media. And they, they've made a handful of movies that I've, I've noticed or that I've seen, but they, so if you go to higher, highergroundmedia.com, they also have co- podcasts. So they are the, uh, so they have an audible deal. Michelle Obama did. It, it used to be with Spotify. Now it's with Amazon audible. They have the some of us. I don't know what that is. The big hit show, whatever they have all these. Oh, they have renegades, which is like this, uh, Barack one. So does this work for podcasts is the oh, question. What's that smell? <laughs> is that opportunity? Oh, self-dealing? I smell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little Barack special, as yeah. we call it. <laughs> uh, do they, oh, I love Obama. Do, does this work for, by the way, he did it right, man. Have you heard, you haven't, he, you haven't heard a peep from Barack. He, he, he's just, he did this thing. He did an all right job. He didn't, whether you like him or love him, he either did great or he did fine. So he did all right job. And then he bounced. You know what I'm saying? He just bounced. He's out. And so he's hanging out with uh, Oprah and David Geffen on Manch- or uh, on their yacht. So he he did it right. But does this count for podcasts? Do we have a... Well, I don't know. My camera's on. You got a video over there? That's a great point. People would call... I've seen in the YouTube comments, people consider us, you know, a film. A premium production. <laughs> premium exactly i think we need to change the the llc name to premium productions uh and uh you're in texas texas is not far from alabama we can do a little road trip <laughs> yeah that's interesting uh, hopefully this works for podcasts but that's an interesting find i thought it was stupid and it's actually more interesting than i thought how was your pod with ramit it was awesome you want to do a recap yeah i haven't listened to it so what's uh what was the best part he made fun of you a little bit. Uh, he took a he took a, a jab not at you. Well, because there was a podcast where I asked you if you could get eight percent consistently, but you can't invest in anything other than your own private business. Would you do it? And he was like, Sean was crazy. I was yelling at the <laughs> I was yelling at the screen, uh, furious that he wouldn't accept that. But he didn't actually give you a hard time. That was it. Uh, 
uh, he's very um, he's very principled, which I actually like. I think uh, you are the opposite. Not I think you are one extreme, and I actually think I'm closer to you a little bit than I am to him. Where he is just like, this is what I want. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do nothing else. Like he's laser focused on a couple things, which I admire. Uh, and then he um, what what is he focused on? He was like, I can make more money with my business. I can do. I could. I could have done a podcast years ago, but I just wanted to wait until I felt it was the perfect right time. So he just calculated. You know, you and I like to just throw little things out there and see what catches. He's not so much that. He also did a really good job. Have you ever heard him talk about the rich life? Yeah, I've heard him explain. It's kind of like he made a list of like what's the rich life to him, and then sort of use that as his financial blueprint. Exactly. And he's got like a handful of things like he's like, I just wanted to have the best assistant because I want them to book things perfectly. So he's like, when I fly, I try to fly on a very specific type of airline with a very specific seat. So I want a certain plane when I fly. I want a certain type of food ready for me when I arrive in my hotel room. And it was just very exact. And I love how exact he was. It sounded like a lot of work to set it up. So I found it intimidating. <laughs> but like he knew I hate exactly. That, I hate people who are that particular. I hate people who are particular in general. I find uh, it to be extremely spoiled and snobbish. Um, you know, I have like sort of the, sort of like you are what you admire. And I have the opposite of admiration for people that are extremely particular about how they want everything managed and taken care of in their life versus people who are like, look, uh, I'm blessed. I'm going to roll with the punches. You don't have to cater to me. Um, I'm going to make, you know, you could serve me food I'm allergic to, and I'm going to find a way to have a, a party in the ER, right? Like, you know, that is more of the mindset that I admire is somebody who is what I call unconditional, meaning their happiness or their mood is not contingent on anything. I find that to be an absolute superpower. And I, I say this because not to, hate on Ramit. I say this because I kind of only ever hear about the opposite, especially in this kind of like, you know, life hacking, productivity, porn, like kind of hustle culture type of thing where I think people get praised for being super meticulous, for being super organized, for planning out everything, for scoping it out, for working backwards, all that stuff. And uh, I never hear about anybody who's praised for being like, you know what, this guy's always in a good mood, regardless of what's happening. But to me, that's the superpower. Yeah, I'm, and I'm closer to you on, in that regard. Like recently, I went to a place and I ordered a steak, and they brought me a pizza that was pesto chicken. <laughs> and I didn't, and I didn't, Not I didn't tell. Close. Like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even tell my my wife was at halfway through. Like, didn't you order a steak? I'm like, yeah, but it was here and whatever. And so I'm I'm more like you, but I respect that he knows what he wants and he wants and he and he lives that way. So I respect that. And then um, Martin Screlly, do you want to talk about him really quick? Yeah, we never got to to debrief that. So. Fun pod. I got a lot of shit. Did did you get shit? No, I got a ton of flack that we had him on. From where? And dude, just online and friends were messaging me. They're like, why would you give this guy a platform? And I don't think they even listened to the episode because uh my my response to why would you give this person a, a platform? It's it's twofold. It's number one, I'm like, well, did you watch the documentary about him on Netflix? And if they say yes, then I say, Well, then he has a platform. Did you criticize Netflix? Right. You know, canceled? you watched it. <laughs> Did you cancel Netflix? Yeah, like you, <laughs> you watched Netflix. Do you watch the news about him? Because you, he has the platform. Right. And second, I'm like, like, how'd you like that Ted look, Bundy docuseries? Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Did you watch that? <laughs> did you Did you watch that? Because right. that's the same thing. And then second, I'm like, well, we actually did challenge him quite a bit. I think I explicitly said. Uh, why'd you act like an idiot? Uh, and why are you such an asshole when you should, didn't have to be an asshole? Like we had a very productive conversation. I think uh, and so, there's a fair criticism, which is 
he has an explanation about like, you know, why, how the healthcare system works, blah, blah, blah. And we're not well-versed enough about the healthcare system to know where to push back. Because like, let's say, I don't know if he told us anything that was incorrect or sort of sleight of handy, but if he did, there's no way I would have known because that's not my area of expertise, right? Like, um, you know, it's like, I, but why is that wrong? I don't know if that's wrong. I'm saying that's a, that would be a fair criticism. Let's say you did know. Yeah. And then somebody comes on here and they say something that's either not true or sort of misdirection or um, besides the point or not really how things work. And the hosts don't push back on it. It can be very frustrating if you do know. And so I'd say that, that's a, if, if that's what happened, that would be, I would say, a fair criticism. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, if you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives that I thought was pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. On the other hand, I thought the most interesting thing he talked about was just sort of like, um, he's like, I could be the Pfizer CEO, corporate speak. Don't, don't toe outside the line. Don't give the media anything to get mad about. Just quietly make your millions just... Do whatever you're going to do, right? Raise prices, uh, you know, uh, whatever whatever it is that you're going to do. It's not like most pharmaceutical companies are, are seen as like, you know, angels. But they don't get the same level of flack because he was very loudmouth. He was very vocal and he, he poked the bear constantly. And what I liked was this moment in the thing where it was like, dude, you're not dumb. So like you probably knew what you should say or you had a person on your PR team tell you at some point, Hey, when you go to Congress and they're asking you questions, don't be doodling, you know, like a dog on your piece of paper uh, and and smugging, you know, you know having a sm- don't smile. Yeah, don't, don't yeah. have a smug look on your face like he knew what to do. But he lives that troll life, baby. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I don't want to be that. I don't want a world where everybody who's successful has to be this robot. And I'm going to be me and I'm going to have fun with it. And I'm going to call BS where I see BS. I'm going to fight with people who don't know what they're talking about. And I got to say, that is one part that I really do admire about him. And I think somebody said this to me after the episode. They go, you know, you guys had uh, Billy McFarland from the Fire Festival on, and he seemed like a dumb, like a dumb cheat. <laughs> they, go, they go, Martin seemed like the opposite. He seemed like a genius cheat, <laughs> which is basically like, you know, Billy came back. And he's like, next thing I'm doing, another fi- <laughs> another Fire Festival. Or like, actually. And he's doing actually, it. That, that he's one was doing pretty it. smart. He, what he had said to us on air was, I'm going to do this thing where you can micro do this. So people are going to go to this island and then you can vote with micro payments to get them to like snorkel with sharks. And like, we're going to jump up the water. You know we're going to jump up the water if people donate. And I was like, wow, that's your comeback. That's a dumb idea. But with Martin, I would say like, uh, you know, I think you could question whatever his ethics or um, if he's, you know, gone straight after whatever, you know, what, what he did to, to, Go to, go to jail. But I think it's hard to deny that the guy's very intelligent and has a lot of interesting things to say. Um, and it, I, you know, frankly, you can learn a lot from, from somebody who's highly intelligent, has interesting things to say. Yeah. I, you know, I, what I was telling people, I'm like, I can like how, how Michael Jackson dances and I could learn how to moonwalk from him, but also not like everything that he did. Right. 
you know what I'm saying? So I, I can like both those things. How's your moonwalk? Um, um, you know, it's a it's a three out of ten, I'd say. <laughs> but uh, I also there's one criticism that we're starting to get now that we're a little bit bigger that I've been thinking about, which is they're like, you have a responsibility to do X, Y, and Z. And my gut reaction is like, F you, I don't have a responsibility. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing whatever the hell I want. But then I'm like, it is journalistically a bit. And that's like a really weird thing to like, uh, kind of approach, particularly when no one got in for, we didn't get into this for that reason. Like we didn't want to pursue truth. We just wanted to have fun. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I think that's, I mean, to be perfectly clear, we are not journalists. This is not journalism. We are not, <laughs> we are not reporting anything. This is me and Sam shooting the shit, talking about business and interesting things we see. And then when we meet interesting people, we have them on the podcast, we have a conversation with them. And sometimes we like what they say and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we buy what they're selling, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we defend people because 95% of people hate them. Uh, but that doesn't mean we think that they're perfect. So, you know, that's, that's right. my stance on it. All right, let's move on to, to something else. You tweeted out that, um, you had nothing to say today, which is always great uh, to hear. I found a few things <laughs> last minute, though. <laughs> did you like my? Uh, did you like my meme? Yeah, uh, uh, the Jesus meme. I thought it was wonderful. It was. Uh, it was. A, there's like this famous. I, is it Catholic? I don't know. Where it's footprints like footprints in the sand is the name of the story. Yeah. Whenever you know, we saw two footprints on the beach, or two sets of footprints, and then all no, of a sudden, one, one I set. didn't see. That's the point. <laughs> well, then if it's no, it's then all of a sudden I didn't see the second footprint. What happened? And it was like <laughs> that's when I was carrying you, son. <laughs> no, it was good. It's like where were you when I needed um, you the most? Why were there only one footprint? All right. So, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go? I'll go first, really quick. This is something that I think both of us are interested in, but I have a feeling you didn't uh, you didn't care enough to look into this because it was like a shit ton of reading, but. Tiny, our friend Andrew Wilkinson, he took his company public. It's officially public. I think the Friday, I don't know what it is today. It was 750 million, I think Canada, which is 560 million USD. Somewhere between um, one and a billion. Yeah, so hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know, whenever you go public, you got to release a huge report. And it's 300 pages. And I read through a lot of it. And I found a bunch of interesting stuff. You, wanna, you want me to tell you some of the sure. interesting things? All right. So the foundation for so Andrew Wilkinson's our friend. He owns this thing called Tiny. Tiny owns either outright owns or partially owns something like ten to thirty things, thirty different businesses. The whole thing started with MetaLab. MetaLab was an agency that he created by himself in two thousand and eight, and he basically made websites. It was nothing fancy at first. He made websites for Silicon Valley companies. But that's a little bit glamorizing it because it was like someone paid him like $20,000 to make like a fairly straightforward, simple website. Then he just kept going and kept going and kept going. Well, it's listed in his... Uh, I actually don't know what this document's called. Uh, in America, I think it's called the 10Q uh, or just whenever they file for uh, to go public. This company's in the, I think, Vancouver Stock Exchange. So I don't know what it's called there. But it's listed as digital services revenue. In 2021, it did $62.8 million. And that's interesting because it actually has been growing not crazy fast. So it's been growing something like 23% a year or for the last handful of years. We can only see a couple of years here. But it does a 45% or 40% margin. So for every $100 they make, their net income is something like 40%, $40, which is crazy. Now, if you start in 2008 and you only grow 20% a year, you actually get to significantly higher than where he's at now. So there was years where it was lumpy, where it didn't grow or it grew a lot and then it uh, got smaller. But 
not significant of a business for something that's been around for what's this now 15 years. And this has been the foundation of everything. He has a CEO of that company. And that CEO is paid $1.1 million, uh, which is a good deal, I think, for everyone. So the CEO gets to run an established company that's working, and they get paid a million dollars. So here's something that's really interesting. If you scroll down to on this document, they have a list of a bunch of the dividends paid since 2021. And if you add them all up, it's something like $15 million that he's took out of the business. Um, they took out a bunch more dividends because they actually took down, I think, something like $100 million in debt. So he he had a debt facility in order to grow the company as opposed to equity, which is awesome because you just take a loan. And if that works, it's significantly cheaper than equity. If it doesn't work, it's that's not good. You owe a bunch of money. But he did it and it worked out. But as he's been growing, he took money like 15-ish million, according to these documents, out. Additionally, they had a company called Mealtime, which is like a meal prepping software that he sold for $25 million. So he had a, and they gained, they profited $13 million off that. So collectively, he's been making tens of millions of dollars along the way. Super fascinating while this business do you remember, is being <laughs> Do you remember when we were having lunch with him? We're going to have to bleep out this number, but do you remember having lunch with him and you asked him some question? You're like, you know, um, at what number did you know life sort of change for you? Or what, what, what numbers mattered in your kind of climb? And then he says, he's like, yeah, um, you know, that's when, uh, that's when, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you go, you go, okay, so that's the net worth. And he goes, no, per year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you go, what? <laughs> we were both like, wait. And then he skipped over it. He, he annual kept, was my he told another story. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, every year. <laughs> we were like, what the actual fuck is this guy talking about? You were making that much? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and and now we see that it that it's all like it's all on paperwork and and by the way everything we're saying this is strictly from the document where so there's nothing else that we know uh but yeah like he kind of killed it there and then one last interesting thing is they own this thing it's the company called is called tiny boards it's really just weworkremotely.com and it makes um i think it's like 6 million a year roughly so it grew during COVID. you know 2000 20 to 21, it grew from like 3 million to 6 million. Then it went back down to like 3 or 4 million. But I looked it up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure there's like three people running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very fascinating. And they bought that or they bought that from uh, 37 Signals from Jason Fried and, and DHH. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, when, uh, so I invested in this right before it went public. So private, just privately. And when I had gone into the kind of the data room, um, I was looking around and I was like, okay, so, it seems like really there's kind of like two interesting observations. One is he creates these like pl- what they call platforms, which is basically means you're going to buy a bunch of the same type of company. So he has an agency platform. MetaLab is the big one, but th- I think they have like seven, eight, seven or eight other agencies. They're just a lot smaller. Job boards. There's like a Webflow agency. There's a there's no code agency. agency. There's a whatever agency. Yeah. So then there's job boards, and they own a couple of job boards. Then there's Creative Tools, which is like they own Dribbled and Dribbleblock Creative Market and, and grew that way. And then they have whatever. They have, they have a couple other. And then they have like this like long tail of random things. Like they own Be Funky, the photo editing app. They own Mealtime. Like they own some random things. And I would say a couple of things really stood out to me when I looked at it. I was like, okay, so you, if you look at where the bulk of the revenue and EBITDA comes from, it's two companies. So yes, he's got a portfolio of 30 companies. But it's MetaLab and it's Dribble that are carrying the thing on its back. I guess the other one would be uh, WeCommerce, which had 
split and gone public, uh, which was a roll-up of Shopify apps. But that one had done pretty well, too. And I think, and that one's at $25 million in revenue, I think. It was like something like $10 million. If you just look at the EBITDA numbers, right? I was like, uh, and I'm not quoting this off. I'm not looking at the sheet, but like just ballpark. I believe that WeCommerce ballpark was at about $10 million in EBITDA when it went public. Um, I remember you saying that on the pod. That's where I'm getting that from. The second one is, um, you know, MetaLab, which you just talked about, you know, let's say 50, 60 million in revenue, 45% uh, margin. So roughly 30 million in, in EBITDA. And then, which is just a juggernaut. And then you have Dribble. And Dribble does what? Um, does it have it broken? 30, here? So in 2000, yeah, in 2021, dri- so here's the numbers for 2021 digital services revenue, which is considered agencies, that was 63 million. Creative platform revenue, which I think is only Dribble. Or it's dribble plus a small thing. In 2020, it did 23 million. In 2021, it did 34 million. And then they have other, which is all this small stuff combined, right. which was about 14. So just those first two digital services, which is almost all MetaLab, um, you know, the rest might add up to less than 20% of that. So if you just add up 60 plus 30 plus 13, right, this is roughly 100, a little over 100 million. And 111. 90 of that comes from uh, MetaLab and, uh, and dribble. And the EBITDA on that, I don't know actually. That's on the uh, people are gonna laugh. People are gonna laugh at me. I don't know what adjusted EBITDA means versus just normal EBITDA. But the normal EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax, and depreciation, that was fifty million dollars on that revenue. Yeah. And you know what I think is remarkable? The amount of equity that they put in to create this. So now this thing is valued at let's call it eight hundred million dollars right now, eight hundred eleven million market cap right now. Which is Canadian, and it's I didn't realize it's a seventy five twenty five percent decrease from USD. Sure. So let's say uh, so it's that comes out to be a little less than six hundred. So yeah, six hundred basically. So six hundred uh, six hundred million dollar market cap company, and I believe uh, he can confirm or deny this, but I believe less than ten million dollars of total equity was put in. So how much cash did it take to start this business? And most businesses don't take a ton of cash, but. Um, but this is a, this is an acquisition based company, so like you know they they were acquiring companies, and so I think less than ten million of seed capital was put in. I could be wrong on that. And the that. and the seed capital came from the from profits Malibu. of the agency. Yeah. So in reality, it's like he started this as an eighteen year old or nineteen year old. He said he was working as a barista it, it, in the papers. It has the story. It's like I was working at a as a coffee shop person. And then I started doing this on the side and it just, we just kept going. And so the takeaway here is like simple shit. It's, it's hard, but it's simple. But for since 2007 or something like that. Amazing. Honestly, kind of, honestly, it, it's amazing. Uh, and congrats, it's, it's to, amazing. congrats to our buddy, Andrew, for going public. That's a big deal. You know, uh, that's a decade plus of, of hard work, 15, 15 years plus of hard work to get there. So, you know, kind of amazing for him. I love that. Any other takeaways you have? Um, no, those are the those are the main ones. Uh, you know, I think you know one other thing that the, uh, Chris, his business partner, had told me at dinner was, I think I might have already shared this on the pod, but he said uh, when he got hired and he met Chris at, at a bank. Chris was a banker, uh, literally like at, at like a branch. Like, like a bank teller, yeah, like, like at, at a branch. <laughs> and he met Chris, and they they were they hit it off about cars. They were talking about cars, and because um, Andrew had rolled up in a cool looking car, and Chris was into it or whatever. So they hit it off. They end up talking for a little while. He's like, "What do you? What's your story? What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, I'm starting to get my uh, my like CPA license. Like, I'm going to be a, a finance person or accountant or whatever." And uh, Andrew's like, "Awesome! I need help. Uh, my business, MetaLab, is just getting off the ground. It's working pretty well, but like, we're super disorganized. Come work with me." And uh, Chris takes the leap of faith, goes to work with him, 
he says that on day one, he's like, I showed up at the office and there's nobody there. Uh, like Andrew's not there. Nobody's answering the door. And then Andrew uh, pulls up in his, his Uber or whatever, his car. Uh, I guess there's no Uber back then, but pulls up in a, in a car taxi, hops out. And he's like, uh, opens the trunk, takes out this giant box full of paper. And he's like, here, here's all of our like numbers, financials. Like this is where it's at. Um, you know, make sense of this and uh, and help us get organized. He hands him this huge box. He's like, oh, by the way, I got to go. So I'm not going to be able to train you right now. Um, and there's no room in the office for you. So I talked to my neighbor. They have like a basement. <laughs> you can sit at their desk in there. And he's like, just knock on the door and tell them you're the guy. And then they'll let you into the, <laughs> the basement desk or something. So he tells the story how he started or whatever, gets, gets it organized. And as they're looking at it, they're like, all right, you have a very profitable agency. Like, what do we do with these profits, right? We're just going to like accrue them. That doesn't seem very good. And they're like, well, what do other agencies do? And they're like, they looked around. I see in other agencies, like all of a sudden there's a giant ball pit in the office. There's a basketball court. They're flying, you know, fancy everywhere. They're, they're hosting, you know, just basically spending money on like, like status stuff or like appearances. And he's like, we shouldn't do that. That doesn't seem to have any ROI. Um, Right, like adding the ball pit to the office doesn't. Yeah, it makes it more fun, but like you know, I, I don't think that's the best use of money. What if we just thought of ourselves like a really profitable law firm, and like you know, what if we were a boring business? What would we do with this money? Well, we would just go try to find a place to reinvest this. What if we take this business that's okay? Agencies aren't the best business, but we use it to buy better businesses. And then that was kind of like the the conversations that they had, and that's when they started going out and acquiring other businesses using the profits from MetaLab. But there's two or there's one part of that story that you're missing. And, and this is because it's probably not fun for them to tell, but they will tell it because they blog about it, which is they actually started other things. So they did the same things that we make fun of and that we've done as well. They started a to do list. It was called Flow. Uh, and it, they, he said he spent like four or five hundred thousand dollars or maybe even close to a million, a lot of money of the profits. And they created this thing, which was basically like Asana, but different. And he goes, Asana crushed us because they spent way more money. And then they started, I think, one or two other things. I think another thing called Ballpark. So they actually started things right away and it failed. And then they go, yeah, let's just buy them. And that's what they <laughs> <Right>. did. <laughs> and they still start things like Supercast or uh, he's got a bunch of different ideas that he's, he started since. But if you just look at them in the grand scheme of things, it's almost like a big company, right? It's like uh, they have the innovator's dilemma. It's like this business is at one million in revenue in nine months. It's like cool who cares well, you know that's one percent you know didn't move the needle this year but probably took a lot of creative energy and recruiting and promoting to get to to get to that level so you have a, a, a tough thing where you enjoy starting new things so you want to do it you keep having new ideas but it's hard for those new things to really break out and make a difference um you know and most most new things generally will will fail or, or, or not go exactly to plan either so it's it's a tough tough balance i think to have and i know what they paid for dribble and um, do you think, I, I think, you know, too, but we can't say it. Do you think that, uh, you can buy companies like this? Like, is this one of those things like, you know, when, or, or am I just being a noob here where people say, oh, you can't start a newsletter now. There's too many new newsletters. I'm like, no, that's not true. But do you, what do you think about the competition now to buy companies versus 10 years ago? Yeah, certainly more, but there's also more supply, right? Like, uh, the number of like interesting, you know, interesting uh, internet companies in 2007 versus 2023 is going to be obviously like many fold more because the internet has just become so dominant. And there's so many businesses that are, that are successful, so many playbooks of how to build a good SaaS business or a good marketplace or whatever. Having said that, this is probably the type of business where you make one 
good decision, one good deal a year or two good deals a year. And that was a great year. And um, that I think that speed is just very hard for most entrepreneurial people to, to go at. Right. Well, yeah, I agree with what you said. This is pretty inspiring and, and awesome. So that's the lowdown on Tiny. Good stuff. Um, Can we talk about, I see you have Harvard's revenue on here. I have an interesting yeah. story about Harvard's revenue. So I want to hear your take. Yeah, I was doing some Friday night research and uh, as one started, does, yeah, got got to thinking, how much money is Harvard making? And I'd like to tell <laughs> you some things about Harvard. So Harvard is this thing that, um, if you really like zoom out, or you're like an alien and you're looking down at, at Harvard, and you're like, what is that thing on the map? Yeah, yeah not no, not, not BU, the other one. You know, the, what's what's over there in Boston? What you would see is basically some combination of a church a hedge fund, and a luxury daycare. And I'd like to tell you about each of those components and how Harvard is basically this multi-billion dollar tax-free juggernaut. All right. There's a lot of taxes uh, in this episode. Yeah. All right. So Buckle up. <laughs> okay. So how is, it a, how is it a church? Well, universities are tax exempt, so they don't pay taxes. They don't pay it on donations. They don't pay it on tuition, room and board, or even capital gains from their hedge fund, which is the second part. So they have an endowment that's about $50 billion that they invest across a, a wide portfolio. I'll tell you their portfolio in a second. So they got a $50 billion hedge fund. They have, uh, they're tax exempt on the gains from the hedge fund, plus all the revenue from their students. Well, I should say revenue from their luxury daycare, because parents will pay, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 a year to send their child to this place for four years. And so they take your kids off your hand for four years and they say, you're, they're going to come out in a better, better place. And so here's some of the numbers around this this mashup juggernaut. Uh, last year, um, 5.8 billion in total revenue. Two billion of that comes from the profits of their endowment. Hell of a year for them. Um, actually, this wasn't last year. This was, I think, 2021. So uh, two years ago. Uh, so 5.8 billion in total revenue, two billion from their endowment, 1.2 billion from education. So what that means is 80% of the revenue is coming from not education. <laughs> That's the other way to look at that. Um, so where does the rest come from? So they have the endowment. You have a billion dollars of grants. So the government funding research for their, their professors, 500 million of donations and 300 million from something you'll know pretty well, which is their publishing arm. I can tell you so all about their, that. Their, their in-house media company. So a couple, couple observations here. The school earns more revenue than both Twitter and Snapchat. <laughs> Twitter's at 5 billion, Snapchat's 4.6 billion. Uh, Harvard is, has more revenue than both of them. And, and it's been doing business. that since, when When was Harvard created? In the Dude, Harvard's like 100 plus years old, I think. And so um, it's been doing that forever. Not forever, but exactly. for a very long time. Amazing business, right? Uh, the publishing arm makes $300 million just selling case studies to other business schools and publishing the HBR, the Review Journal, which is basically a really fancy paid Substack. It's got 350,000 subscribers who pay for the HBR, the Harvard Business Review. But the majority um, of that revenue, I think, I can try to find it, but I studied this a lot. I think that a lot of the, so if we go to Harvard Business School, they, uh, they release all their, they, break, their, it out. they yeah. break it all out. And so if I read it here, so 34% of the, so their revenue actually went down. In 2019, it was 900 million. In 2021, it was 800. So 34% of that was whatever you said, 300, comes from publishing. The next thing down is 14% came from tuition. And of the right. of the 34% from publishing, most of it is from selling, I think it's like they've sold like they sell like five million case studies a year. To other business schools. Yeah. Which is which is insane. It's it's a and lot. The, and the Harvard Business Review has a lot of revenue from international. So here's the other kind of like 
dirty secret from, from Harvard, which is that they make a ton of money off of executive education, $464 million. So almost like not quite half, but like, you know, almost half of the money they make from their degree, their actual school, they make on executive education, which is basically you pay to get professional development credits, aka you get to put Harvard on your resume without actually having a Harvard degree. If you go to and Tyra so, Banks, you remember, you remember Tyra Banks? The, the the model. Like if you go to if you go <laughs> yeah that's right uh, <laughs> if you <laughs> big T for sure if you go to uh, uh, her LinkedIn it says Harvard Business School and then like you got to scroll down extension. and then you, you'll see you'll see parentheses <laughs> and you'll say you, I'll say extension uh, it's a very <laughs> classic technique right my cousin did this he went there uh, and I was like whoa you're going to Harvard he's like I'm going to a I'm taking classes at Harvard. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I'm taking classes at Harvard. So you, you got into Harvard. Uh, yeah. (laughs) You know, like, sure. I got into the executive education program at Harvard. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, like, you know, on my resume, it says Harvard. And he's like, you know, one out of three people understand what it is. And two out of three don't. I like my odds. <laughs> yeah. And so statistics there, there's that, was there's also the international talk. arm. Their international revenue is up like 80% because they're selling the H the business review over there. They're selling, uh, you know, executive education. Come on, come to, come to America, come to the best part of America, come to the, the Louis Vuitton of, uh, of education. Right. So basically you got billions in revenue, zero taxes owed, huge barrier to entry, a brand that's lasted over a century. The government loans your customers money and gives you grants for your R&D. Like, what a business. Dude, that's absolutely crazy. And a lot of people don't realize this. Um, and to put these numbers in perspective, let's just say that... So you said their endowment. I'm just doing all this math right here. Um, so I'm, I might be off, but I bet you if we Google it, this will be true. If their endowment is 50... You're not doing public math, are you? Well, yeah, I am. Sorry. But if they're in debt, but it might be wrong. If their endowment is $55 billion... Um, it can, and their expenses, some years, I just Google it right now, is around $5 billion. That means, theoretically, there are some years that they can pay or charge their students zero tuition and pay for everything well, still. The way that the endowment works is it's a $50 billion-ish endowment. And they're, the plan is they distribute 5% of it a year. So 5% of it a year is used, but they, the, 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 the rule is this endowment needs to last forever. So they're only going to distribute 5% because they need the other 95% to stay in and keep rolling. And in 2022, when my portfolio was down like 45%, they lost 1.8%. Well, they're Goddamn doing it right, Goddamn Harvard right? geniuses. Somehow <laughs> lost only less than 2% when the whole market has been terrible this year. Here's, here's their portfolio, by the way. 3% cash. Okay. 32% into hedge funds. Which hedge funds does it say? It doesn't say which ones, no. 44% into private equity plus venture capital, but most of it's private equity. So what do they buy? So, so that's the bulk of it. Um, and then there's 6% real estate, 3% bonds, 5% treasuries, and 6% foreign equities. Okay. So what's this private equity stuff? Are, is, does that mean they're like in actual like- Actual PE, like- Like Blackstone? BlackRock or, or whatever. Or yeah. BlackRock? Wow. Dude, this is like a circle jerk to the max. Everyone's hands full <laughs> on this one. This is crazy, right? Because- Everyone's uh, hands full on this one. Yeah, because- you, if you think about it, like if I look up where the hedge fund guys went, I bet 
you know, yeah. 70% of them went to Harvard. I mean, this is just, it's, it's pretty, it's a very circular <laughs> thing going on here. It's pretty wild. Like it, it, it is, it's, I would say it's almost corrupt. And if you think about 50 billion, a $50 billion endowment, that's bigger than I, uh, than I would imagine 95% of countries GOP. I mean, it's like, that's massive. <laughs> GOP? <laughs> or, uh, sorry, GDP. GOP. Uh, GOP, that's the, uh, what's that? The, uh, the Republicans. Republicans. <laughs> what's uh, GDP? Yeah. But, and yeah, like, you know, we think these VC funds like Sequoia and Andreessen are like really big. Like, I don't know what Andreessen's total AUM is, but I'm guessing it's like between 10 and 15 billion. Uh, it ain't, it ain't 50. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 50 billion. And they're, I think, I mean, they're, they're, uh, okay, so they're now at 35. They've been scaling it up like crazy. Um, but that's our full time job. Harvard is more. That's their thing. You <laughs> that's know what I mean? That's their thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's their thing. This is just like, you know, I, I would imagine. There was a, I forget what I was watching, but there was some show where it was like, a lot of people don't realize this, but like venture capital and PE, like the biggest, when people, I, I always hated when people celebrated a venture capital company going bust, like uh, what was that one guy who, uh, the, the Disney guy who went and started uh, the thing that, Quibi, you know, it raised like billions of dollars and it went, and, and it went bust. What a lot of people don't yeah. realize is this money for, so the money that, is given to Andreessen Horowitz and to this and that. It comes from the universities. It also comes from the California's teachers pension plan or right. the the police pension plan or firefighters or and like you'll like I think if I remember correctly I I believe like Nevada for some reason I think it was like the state of Nevada for their pension plan for government government workers something like that had one of the best uh, returns and they was basically like one dorky guy and. He's pretty much just like Warren Buffett. You know, he has a, a similar style or um, a similar budget where he has all this money and he just would sit in this office. And but except unlike Warren Buffett, he's getting paid by the state. And so there was a story about how he was making, you know, a nice amount of money a year, but he would bring brown paper bag lunch and he had just right. drove a Ford. Windows 95. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, look, I'm on the... Uh, and, and, and this guy was like a fiduciary of fiduciaries where he was like, I don't waste taxpayer money. And because of that, I read all this stuff. I very rarely make big bets. And but when I do, it fucking crushes it. And so like these guys, <laughs> <What a Chad. laughs> yeah, he's he's great. Chad. And he's like, and so anyway, it's just like these guys making these decisions. They're just government workers in a way, but they're making they're basically mini Warren Buffets. And so it's really fascinating, right. like the world of these like endowments and these pensions. Yeah, I, met, I met a guy once who worked for Alaska's permanent fund. I don't know if you know about this. They have seventy nine billion in assets under management. So That's Alaska crazy. has all this money from the oil stuff or whatever. And then they give everybody who lives in Alaska like three grand a year or something like that. Just Which so is basically like, well, you know, when people were talking about universal income, they're yeah. like, oh, that sounds crazy. I'm like, you know, they do that in Alaska. I think I think you get 15 grand a year if you live in Alaska. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I thought it was like maybe three or four. But yeah, maybe it's more. Um, um, but yeah, there. And then there, I met a guy who manages that that money. And he's just like, what was he like? I mean, he, he wasn't the main principal, but he was a guy who worked there. And he was like, he was at the farming conference. And I was like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm looking for, you know, intelligence and, and, and investments. You know, <laughs> farmland is a great investment. And I was like, wow, uh, good for you. This is, uh, you know, who would have thought you, this guy's managing way more money or these people manage way more money than like the, the famous kind of hedge funds or, um, or venture capitalists that you hear a lot about. Dude, I wonder if this topic is interesting. Ben, let me know in the Slack because I like, I'm geeking out on this stuff. I found this to be crazy fascinating. Um, so he's typing now. Um, you want to do one more thing? Yeah, let's do one more. I have a quick idea. My nine? My nine. Okay, so uh, 
Sounds a little bit sick. Uh, last twenty four hours. I don't know. You if have you a tell. great haircut, by the way, though. I really like the uh, oh, the, the uptown fade. You got you know high <laughs> high fade. It's the uptown fade with the downtown brow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. I just wanted to say something cool. It looks good. You look sharp. Have you been? Have you? How much weight have you lost in the past three years? Um, I think I've gained weight <laughs> in the last three years. I just changed the composition. Like I, uh, you're looking. I put spelt. on a lot of muscle too much muscle um in a way that's like not good like uh not like it's like i'm not I'm neither a bodybuilder nor am i ripped i'm just thick and thick is like i don't know anybody who puts thick on their vision board like <laughs> well, some people do i mean look at your your, your, your like right arm right Cardi now dude your right arm right now i definitely well, let me hit you with a little i definitely see, see a tricep. Try? yes see a I, try? I see a great teardrop man that's a that you gotta you got a good tricep muscle is that's it? my uh what do you call it? Like your 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 highlight, your Keystone asset. That's my Keystone asset. Right there, your, your tries. <laughs> Thank God it's in the Zoom view. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine no, I, if my quads were what was good. I'd just be wasting it every day. Welcome to my life, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should make an excuse to stand up every day, every every episode, just to you know flex on them a little yeah, bit. Yeah, quadzilla. No, you look good. You definitely look svelte. Uh, and people in the comments are saying it. But sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, that, I mean, that was great. Uh, anytime, anytime you want to take that tangent and we can go there. Um, all right. So I was, uh, I was in a fever and I had a little fever dream. I thought of an idea that I'm pretty sure would go viral. I'm not going to do it, but, um, you know, our friend, um, Nikita, who cr- has created the same app twice and sold it twice to the same, to, to similarly stupid tech companies that, that didn't realize it's like, just like a nothing app. Oh, you're talking uh, about, uh, Nikita, the asshole beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's his nickname, face. right? <laughs> <laughs> That's his official name, right? For those of you who don't know, we call him true. DB Cooper, but it just stands for <laughs> Douchebag Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know Nikita the asshole beer. You know, the funny thing is, he's got this persona online of being kind of like a shit poster and like kind of a shithead. But usually when you meet those people, the, if you ever meet somebody like that, you're like, what, what are they like? It's like, dude, total sweetheart. Love that guy. Totally not like you see online. No. <laughs> you know how like, you know, it's a very common thing where you're like, oh, you know, Sean, you know, Sam, whatever. Oh, yeah. Great guy. Great guy. I don't know if they, I, that those, <laughs> that phrase may not be used with him. <laughs> Is he getting great guy? He's not getting yeah. great guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, he's more of a, he doesn't get a wow. He gets a wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that, that's him. So anyways, the, the genius of what he's done, because undeniably created, uh, you know, these like really viral teen apps is his app works as follows. You download the app, you take a quiz that says who in your school or who in your contacts is most likely to whatever. And they try to figure out in your contacts who you, ta- who you talk to the most or whatever so that they could surface maybe the right person in a, in a multiple choice so that you you say Sam is is the guy who I'd want to bail me out of jail. And then at the end of the thing, it's like, wow, those are awesome. Do you want to know what Sam says about you? And you're like, yeah, for sure. And basically it texts you in the background and it's like, Sam, someone said that you'd be the most likely person to bail him out of jail. Do you want to see who? And you're like, of course, click, yeah. download, and you take the quiz. And that's the viral loop. Do you remember back in the, I think I have another one of these. Uh, do you remember back in the day, the MySpace top, top eight, I think it was called? It was like, uh, was that like who was in your top eight friends? Yeah, you just got, I mean, this was. This is just like a whole pretty wild concept, to be honest with you. You just put on your profile, yo, these are my top eight friends in order, <laughs> which is like, I don't know. Today, that'd be considered like, you know, bullying to the 10th degree. But Well, you know, I think where that came from was like, 
you remember blog rules? Or yes. it was like if, if you would go to a blog and it would say like, um, here's who else. Yeah. yeah on the right hand side, you would list like eight other blogs that were similar to you that you were friends with, which by the way, I thought was awesome. I always like, I, I go, to, I try to yeah, find it's whenever a great read blogs, way to discover things. Yeah. I love doing that. And then a lot of people don't know this, but Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, he created, what was it called? It was called media link, I think. And it basically went from zero to like a $400 million acquisition. And all they did, I think, originally, it was called Link Exchange, is what it was called, is they helped broker the deals where eventually it was a pay to play for like the blog rolls, which is like the things on the side. And I think that is where MySpace kind of got like this idea of like, here's like my top eight or whatever. Like, here's the people I to help you discover new people. Right. And, you know, Tom from MySpace would always be your, your automatic number one when you start, and then you have to fill in your friends. And it was this awesome thing. You could go to someone's profile, and you could be like, oh, they're best friends with this person. Oh, this girl moved to number one. Maybe they're dating. It was like this little, like, this, like, signaling thing. And it was cool. to be. It was felt so good to be in someone's top eight, and it felt so bad to be out of someone's top eight. So, but it, it lets you know where you stand. And there's something I really appreciate about that. So I think you can recreate that now with something I'm calling My9. And what My9 is, you download this app, and it just says, who are your nine people? Who you, who you who you rocking with? And you just designate, uh, of my contacts, these are my nine, and it lets you publish that as a photo to Instagram or as a video onto TikTok or whatever. It just lets you share that out, just saying, hey, here's my nine, and you tag them. And it texts them also from your phone. And somebody puts you in their, 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 their my nine. Do you want to see who? And of course, you're going to download. Of course, you're going to sign up to see who. You're going to connect your address book, and then you're going to select your nine, and you'll reciprocate. Because that's what people do. And so I think this would also go super viral because I think it just has those like human psychology triggers where if you got that message, you, you got to know who did it. And then when you're there, you'll do it too because it's kind of fun, like a little personality quiz. And then that triggers the next nine invites that go out. And nine invites is enough to go viral. So like, even if you have a 15% conversion rate, which this would have like more like 40% probably, um, you will, by definition, your K factor will be over one. You will, you will go viral, dude. I always wanted that for when I die, you know, like my nine for when I die, my die, my die, my die. <laughs> so, like, I've I've always wondered, like, if I die, how is anyone gonna know? Because, like, when you, I imagine this sounds douchey. I don't On your know, tombstone, just here's my nine friends, top well, nine friends. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I'm gonna preface this. This sounds douchey, but when you start having a little bit of something, you eventually you have so many different accounts, and like there's companies that I've invested in, and I fucking forgot when I <laughs> when I sold the hustle. We there's this one guy. He uh, what was his name? Jonah. Uh, he started Moat.com and he sold it for like a billion dollars. He's just a rich guy, and he gave me very little money, enough that like he probably makes that a day in interest. And when we sold. It took me a year to get in contact with him. <laughs> I swear to God, it took the, the lawyers were like, dude, we cannot get in touch with this guy. Like, his, because he, he sold his company. So, it's, and like, he just, we can't get in touch with him. We don't know how to, we got to give him his money, but he's owed money. And it's just sitting here. And I'm not close to that, but there are some investments that I've made that I've forgotten about. And I've always wondered, like, if I die, how is anyone in my family going to know, like, who get, like, <laughs> where the stuff is or if they're, who are they going to contact? Am I, like, is there like a like a like a like a next of kin like checklist? You know what I mean? <laughs> and it changes all the time too. So even if you wrote it down once, this is going to change. I actually don't know how this works. When when you die, how do they discover all your assets? Especially now with like crypto or angel investing. Like, how I don't are they going to discover all this stuff. And who are they going to know how to contact? Because particularly with crypto, it's a lot of single young guys. Like who's like right. the next the next of kin for that? I, I have no idea. You know, there was. Do you watch Succession? 
Hey, this is producer Ben. Quick note, Sam is about to drop a massive spoiler for the HBO series Succession. So if you plan on watching it and you're not all the way caught up, skip ahead like two minutes. Enjoy. They're like, he he just left everything to this emoji. <laughs> yeah. On? <laughs> Dude, on on Succession, it's like a, you know, the thing, it's basically Rupert Murdoch's family and the, the Rupert Murdoch character dies and they find his will and he wrote it in pencil, but they, and they, there's this part where he's giving stuff the company to his son and they can't determine if he's crossing it is yeah well no they couldn't determine is he crossing out the guy's name or underlining the guy's name because <laughs> he like it was like a crooked line they're like is he crossing it out or underlining <laughs> we don't really know what that is but i thought about that i'm like when i die if i die and my wife dies at the same time let's say we don't have kids whatever i'm like how are they, who are they going to know to contact it? like they got to figure right. out where my mother lives like it just seems like an ordeal yeah, you're gonna have a really rich dog yeah, I guess. Uh, so, so they need my nine, but like, that's like now like you took the, this in terms of like a uh, a trust and will solution. Yeah, like my teenage viral app idea. Yeah, my nine probate is what it's called, and it's just You're, like you really uh, yes ended that one. <laughs> <laughs> you went full improv kid on that one and took it to a holy place, dude. I've just been thinking about that. Have you not thought about that? Because like, there's some shit that you probably done. It could be small. Like every once in a while, I'll like just do a deal. Like I'll just invest like five grand into something and. I don't tell anyone about it. Like, you know, right. you and I, you and I were joking five grand is about the limit where you like tell your spouse that you're doing it. And like, right. you know, there's been things that I've done. I'm like, Oh, I don't even fucking remember And I guess there's a scratch off ticket that I won somewhere. I have no idea. <laughs> Dude. Um, Yes, I've thought about that, especially with crypto. But then when crypto crashed, I was like, hey, never mind. Forget forget, forget what I told you. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those instructions I told you about how, like, you know, it's written on this fireproof, you know, meta- platinum card that's stored in this safe in this foreign country. Yeah, forget about it. You don't need to go retrieve it anymore. <laughs> Particularly with crypto, it seems crazy. Um, so I need my nine, but for my will. God damn. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I guess that's the pot. <laughs> Did I? I meant to be a yes man on that one. By right. the way, not a, not a. Uh, yeah, you did. All right, good. That's good. <laughs> all right, uh, is that the pod? That's the pod.